Welcome back to the Nick Finzer audio experience. Today we're taking a look back at a Q&A session from last year, and uh, this one is number 63, if you're keeping track. But uh, we're talking all things uh, having to do with, of course, jazz trombone, my biggest influences, and we deep dive into um, what you should deep dive on and why you should deep dive into your favorite players rather than going wide. So this is something that I bring up a lot with my students. You want to go deep, not wide, and we'll dig into it in this episode, as well as what goes on your website. This is something, especially at this time of year when people are wrapping up school, moving into summer, moving on from graduation into the real world, they might be thinking about, should I even have a website? What goes on my website and all that sort of stuff. And in today's episode, we will dig into those things. And if you want to watch these Q and A's, just head on over to YouTube. You can find Ask Nick 063 and uh, enjoy the episode. Uh, if you didn't know, we are hosting a great event on June 14 through 18 and registration is open now. That's the Jazz Trombone Bootcamp. Jazz Trombone Bootcamp featuring some wonderful artists like Vincent Gardner, Andre Hayward, like Steve Davis, like Michael Davis. So we are going to be doing that June 14 through 18. It's a virtual event, so if you're anywhere in the country, you can do it. Um, it's starting to fill up, so uh, if you want to reserve your spot, you can go to my store, nickfinzer.store, and find it. And it's in the link. If you're on YouTube or Facebook, you can see it in the in the description. You can you can click on that and go right on over. But I just don't want people to miss out if they want to attend. So so that's the first thing I wanted to talk about the second thing i'm planning to do a series of master classes in april and maybe a little bit in may um, about like specific topics like pick one topic and do a deep dive rather than these q a's where it's kind of you know all over the place talking about different stuff but do master classes uh and kind of have a pay what you want pay what you can um kind of situation ticketed situation so for like a private you know, a Zoom meeting where we'll, you know, go through it, stuff like that. So I need to know two things. One is what are the topics that we should talk about? Like, what are the different masterclass topics that you want to see? I did a, a poll on Instagram before, so I have a list uh, somewhat of some things uh, that people want to hear. But I wanted to ask also here on the uh, stream what what you guys are thinking about, because you guys are here every week asking questions. So what could, what could we dive deeper on topics, number one? And then what is... Uh, a good time, you could also suggest that. Uh, a good time in the week, a good time during the day, because we got people from all over, so it's a little hard to do it. So I think we'll do them at different times just to accommodate for different people during the week, during the weekend, uh, in the day, in the evening. What excerpts would you include in your jazz trombone excerpt book? Well, you'll have to wait for the book for that. Like if I tell you all the excerpts and you learn them, you don't got to buy the book. Uh, a couple, one that I think is a good excerpt is Sonnet for Hank Sank by uh, Duke Ellington. That's one. Um, a lot of people are like the the soli on three and one. So Thad Jones is another, like a little minor booze. I know the Kenton band arranged it, but that one's got like a trombone thing at the beginning. That's kind of hard. So there's three for you. Any suggestions for jazz solo rep for something like a jury or recital? You should pick tunes that you sound good on and that you like. And that also show a wide breadth of interest, not interest, but a wide breadth of expertise that you've learned. Um, during either that year or during your whole degree, if it's a degree recital, I would suggest making sure to have a, ba a good balance of stuff that you're good at and stuff that you are can showcase what you're working on. So some things might include, like I, I always try to get, you know, you know, gotta have something fast, a ballad, you know, something um, 
lyrical, something original. I mean, for a, for a recital anyway. For for a jury, you kind of have to talk to your teacher though, because I don't know exactly what you're working on, and I would wouldn't know what you need to showcase. I kind of group tunes into different you know categories like modal tunes or bebop tunes, um, blues, rhythm changes. Those are their own categories. You know, tunes in different keys. I would try to. I think that a jury or a recital, both of them, the purpose of them is to not only play music that you like and music that you want to play, but it's also for uh, your teacher and you to show everyone all the things you've been working on over the last couple of um, years or semesters or weeks. Um, so those those are some things to take into consideration. And I think it's really important to be playing music that you like also because you never know when you're gonna get a chance to play those tunes that you like again. So uh, it's gotta be a balance though. I wouldn't go and do something totally uh, totally off radar because it's like it does serve a purpose, you know, like a recital. A recital definitely serves a purpose. So how do you work on your time feel? Sometimes when I turn on the metronome, it feels more like of a crutch than a tool. Yeah, that's exactly what happens when sometimes when people turn it on. So if you turn it on and put it on one, instead of putting it on one, two, three, four, or two and four, that is gonna force you to do it, keep the time yourself. But to me, playing metronomically and playing with a strong time feel aren't the same thing. Um, playing in time is not the same as playing the time. So I, that's how I kind of make the difference between the two. Playing in time or playing the time. So when I say uh, make sure you're playing the time, that means that you're the one that's dictating the time. You're the one that's creating the feel. You're the one that's actually making it happen and is being communicated. Um, often you know, just playing on top of the time accurately doesn't have a feel to it. But somebody like that really like their time just draws you in. You're like Michael Deese is a person who has such strong time feel that it like draws you in. That's something that I aspire to get uh, better at. But there's two things, two ways to do that. One is to do what you're talking about, practicing with a metronome, but putting it on further, like longer and longer increments. So you do it like in one bar, so put it on one. So you go bing, two, three, four, bing, two, three, four. Then you put it half of that. So then you put every two bars. So bing, two, three, four, boom, 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 bing. So maybe if your metronome only goes down to 60, then you can only do it at whatever tempo that is. But 60, that's 240, I suppose. But if you go and, you know, Dan, I think it was Dan Tepfer made a metronome app where you can um, put it every other bar and stuff like that. So I think there are various metronome apps that allow you to do this. I am not that sophisticated. I have a very, I just have a regular old metronome. So, um, but that's a, definitely a tool to use. So there's that. And then you got to play along with records and play with intensity to get that time feel happening from inside. It's got to come from here. You know, it's got, it's got to like, you got to feel it. It's not going to just happen. You have to actually play the time with intention. Lane says, I have an extraordinarily talented 13 year old student in Chicago. She shows tremendous giftedness academically. What inspired you to latch on to beauty and musicality when you were young? Man, it was trombone choir. I know that sounds like probably pretty nerdy, but uh, just listening to that and like orchestral brass excerpts and just the sound, just the sound is like amazing. You know, what really def like really cemented that for me was when I was a freshman at the Eastman School of Music, we went to um, DC to play at the ATW. American uh, Eastern Trombone Shop, Eastern Trombone Workshop, then American Trombone Workshop now. And we also did a concert at the National Cathedral, which was super awesome. And we played Bach's 
There was a Pasacalia and Fugue. I forget which one it was, but it was arranged. It was arranged for trombone choir and organ. And let me tell you about a powerhouse of a sound that was incredibly powerful sound. And just in terms of sheer resonance, like imagine, you know, 20 trombone players plus a huge pipe organ. That was like a highlight musical experience for me of just like amazing sound. Trombone is the best. <laughs> so that's one. I mean, I was first drawn into jazz trombone from someone like Wycliffe Gordon and no matter what he played, there was always an element of voc vocal stuff to it, vocal vocalization. There was always an element of beauty, even in the dirty plunger, you know, blues. So I don't know. There's always been, I didn't come at it from like a language bebop perspective first. It was like that vocalizing thing first. And then all of the technical stuff came later for me. But any improv games are other ways to improve phrasing. Um, yeah, so you need two things. One is to start recording yourself and listening back and evaluating where your phrasing is good, where your phrasing is bad. Then you need to, I don't know about an improv game necessarily, but I would say that you need to um, transcribe players that have good phrasing. Someone who comes to mind when I think of trying to break people out of their normal phrasing uh, on trombone would be uh, Bob Brookmeyer. He plays different kind of phrases. Uh, he plays longer phrases than a lot of people. Um, and you can kind of trace a lineage with him and kind of go a long ways back into the history. Uh, so if you go back further, you know, with Bob playing with Clark Terry versus the Village Vanguard versus uh, his later stuff, you can kind of see a progression. But uh, you can kind of pick wherever you want. I recommend the stuff that he did with Jerry Mulligan because Jerry Mulligan is another one that has kind of an interesting way of phrasing. You got to transcribe these kind of people that are playing with off phrasing, meaning like aren't, it's not the same, exactly the same as Bird, right? It's developing your phrasing into a longer sequence. And, and the thing that was amazing to me is that, you know, a lot of that comes with um, experience and age. And I wish I could like, put a shortcut, you know, like of like, there's just experience in, certain, in a certain way that has to come. Um, because Bob Brookmeyer came to Eastman when I was a student there. And I will just say like the most interesting part of that, there was a lot of great things that happened. But we were in combo and he came in and heard us play. He's like, he's like, oh, that was fine. He was kind of curmudgeonly towards the end of his life. But, uh, oh, that was fine. But you guys have terrible phrasing. And so he got up and came over and said, all right, when I touch you on the shoulder, stop playing. So when we played more and he just did that, it completely changed how everybody sounded. Just from that little bit of like compositional expertise, his, his view of what you played, like, and just like stop. <laughs> That's the hardest thing is just knowing when to stop and knowing when to... Um, the phrase can be ended or when it needs to keep going. Um, so that was super, super, super interesting um, as an observer and why I send people to Bob Brookmeyer to get different phrasing. Um, there's other things you can do, like try try starting on a different part of the, the measures, try starting on a different part of the beat to um, start your improvisation or whatever. But I find it just transcribing people that play that way. And just being open, listening to people that play long phrases, that's gonna it's gonna try to help you get there. Because so because it's, it's not just transcribing; it's transcribing and absorbing the phrasing. You have to be able to recreate it on your own. It has, that's the only way. There are many of us older folks playing trombone. We want to learn more and improve. So not college folks. 
Are there things you find teaching us oldies that you need to spend more or less time on? Uh, I think that the volume of practice is probably higher with the college students. Um, I think that what ends up happening is uh, there's a resistance to wanting to like learn new things sometimes. And um, you want to just stick with the stuff you know. But if you don't push yourself beyond those things or like you put sometimes people put like a cap like, oh, well, I'm only doing this. This is a hobby. Um, I, there's like they put a f artificial ceiling on what they can do and so just getting out of that like mental trap to me is a big part of the game of working with someone who quote unquote is a hobbyist or non-professional non-college student you know it, there's there's the mental aspect of getting them to like no you got to play the trombone and you got to work on all different types of music you got to push yourself you've got to do the transcribing a lot of them say oh i have bad ears um i don't want to do it the hard way they want um, which is learning by ear. I mean, there's, there's not that much difference between you know the college student and the and an older student, other than maybe the time they have. Well, whoever you're studying with, whatever you're working on, just like don't put a ceiling on yourself and kind of really work out those technical details. Be open to working hard on very small, small details. You know, that's that's what gets you furthest the fastest is that small detail work that seems tedious. Um, and then going from there. Have you ever had to perform completely cold with no earlier playing at all in the day? Yes, many times. <laughs> many, many times. Uh, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but about at some point you just decide that like you're just gonna play and you'll warm up in the first couple of bars of playing. I think that it's important to um, have like a quick warm up, you know, like a two minute warm up. There's a video on YouTube I put up like a two minute warm up or whatever to, to just be able to go you know and i saw wycliffe gordon do this many times he would come straight from the airport to some some gig i was you know there to see him at he used to come to rochester a fair amount when i was growing up and um he would just come straight from the airport and straight on stage play and i was like man that's incredible how's he do that and then i realized oh you kind of just have to put together like a mental checklist of like how do i play and just go and you know that you'll warm up along the way um, do i recommend doing it every day of course not you know but sometimes you just got to play cold. And if you're playing at a jam session, you're going to play cold. If, if somebody calls you to sit in, if you're going to be cold. <laughs> I remember that happened once. Uh, I went to smoke to see Mike D's playing. And I didn't have my horn, of course. And he was like, oh, no, just play my horn. I mean, that might not happen so much now anymore with, uh, with all of our uh, health concerns. But he was just like, oh, man, just play, just play my horn. You can sit in. And so <laughs> I remember doing it just picking up Mike's horn and, pl and playing. And you just have to turn it on, man. So it's an important skill as a professional musician to develop. What is your go-to process for writing? Go-to process for writing for jazz combos. I often find it harder to write for smaller ensembles due to the natural limitations that come with a smaller instrumentation. That's interesting because I find the exact opposite. I rather I would rather write for a, lar a small ensemble because I find that there's too many voices in a large ensemble, especially uh, when it comes to the brass having eight or you know five in the reeds like i think writing for like a nonet or something is a lot easier personally like five voices a couple rhythm section parts <clears throat> personally for me but for writing for combos for writing for a small group the it's always for me about the melody and the emotion of the music so you decide on what's the vibe from the melody write the melody and then you kind of figure out 
The same way I do with a big band chart or something is you can kind of map it out in words. And I steal this from John Clayton. I'm not going to try to take credit when I didn't come up with something. So John Clayton came and did a master class at Juilliard, and he talked about writing out the musical events in an arrangement, the musical events that happen, whether it's small group, trombone ensemble, big band. When you can't think of what you're going to do or you're having writer's blocks, like, okay, there's going to be the melody. We know that. There's going to be a solo. What does the solo look like? Is it, who is it? Is there going to be backgrounds? Is this, you know, all these kind of things. You can kind of decide in advance. So when you start writing, you have a guide, and you can kind of just follow it down, knock all the items off. It helps, especially when you have a deadline, for me, to have that plan. I, yeah, so I think you're just having a good melody, then you harmonize that, you know, for a small group. And then I think it's really important to write us for a small group, like actually for the players. Now, this is something that might be hard when you don't know who's going to play or something like that. But I, I much prefer to write for players than I do for instruments because you know what somebody can do. You can imagine what the sound is. Like I know, for example, when I get my band together and it's and it's Lucas Pino playing tenor and me playing that we have a good we have a good uh, rapport of playing together and being able to blend our sounds together and and it sounds good when I play higher than him but with other tenor players with a different sound it doesn't sound quite the same you know I'm not going to call anybody out or anything because it's not really about good or bad it's just facts of like this sound sounds this way my sound sounds my way and when you combine them together you know they sound a certain way as well so same thing with guitar like I have a thing with I really like unison guitar and trombone so having that together is those two instruments together kind of like it has to be a particular guitar sound you know and it can be a more like quote-unquote modern sound it could be a more cla classic sound but it kind of combines together in a certain kind of way so hopefully that helps uh, I wouldn't worry too much about like thick voicings or writing it for to sound like a big band you want to write it to sound like a small group lots of space for blowing and um, backgrounds and all that kind of stuff if you had to choose a few trombonists who have greatly influenced your sound, who would they be and why? What is it about their sound that speaks to you? Yeah, that's a good question. So I usually, when I do this exercise with my students, I always say uh, it's usually, it's Wycliffe Gordon, Curtis Fuller, J.J. Johnson, Steve Davis, and then someone in the classical side like like Joe Alessi. Or actually, I would actually probably say that in my formative years, it was Christian Lindbergh who I was listening to more than Joe Alessi. So there's five. And so there's different parts about each of their sounds that I really like. Also, Slide Hampton is there, although his sound is like very different when you listen to 60s slide versus 2000s slide. So it really has changed. It's really changed a lot. So I, I guess from my opinion, like I'm not sure that Slide, like his um, sound concept is, is as um, influential on me. Uh, historically speaking, as like his his writing, his uh, approach, his intensity, all of those things I kind of take from slide, his vocabulary. Um, anyway, so for sound, you're trying, like I love how Curtis plays a ballad. He's got a warm sound that kind of just like wraps you up. Wycliffe Gordon always plays with so much vibe and soul, and he's got this brilliance to his sound that like, I mean, he does play loud, but it cuts and it reson it's very resonant, you know, and it's very vocal. So I think I really like how he always plays with vibe. There's other people that do that too, but he was the first person that I like really was listening to a lot. So that, JJ, just so clear, so precise. Oh, I got too many now. But JJ, JJ, JJ's core and clarity, you know, and then um, 
Well, who else did I say? Steve Davis, because the sound is so warm. It's coming out of Curtis, but maybe just like a, maybe like somewhere in between JJ and Curtis, and I really like Steve Davis's sound. And it speaks to me. Christian Lindbergh has that same kind of like brilliance to his sound, but so much core. And I think I, when I was younger, I was just impressed by like the theatrics of all of what he would do. But I'm just trying to think in like my formative years, like those were the sounds. Like it was, I was listening to Wycliffe Gordon and JJ and Curtis, if I had to pick like even less. And then it kind of from there kind of expanded. Advice for things to include, think about when starting a website. Really important to have a website, number one. So I'll start there um, because if nothing else, it's because you own that small little corner of the internet. You can control what's there, when things are posted. Nobody can tell you uh, what to post there or when to post there. Um, and you control the distribution. You can send as much traffic there as you want. Uh, you own it, right? So as long as we're on the same page there, that's number one. Because some people don't think they need a website. So one, one, deciding you need to have a website. Two is don't worry too much if it's like, if Jackson Churchill is not available, it's not really a big deal. You know, Jackson Churchill trombone, Jackson Churchill music, whatever you want to do. It's not going to be a big deal. But so designing a website, the important thing to think about is that you want to optimize every page for the user, the visitor, to take one action. They're not gonna look around your whole site. Most of them that are coming to your site are trying to get something. They're trying to either get information about you, they're trying to see who you are, listen to your music, they, ha they have a purpose like why they're there. They clicked through maybe from Facebook or from an email and you wanna send them somewhere where you can get one specific action done. So having different pages with one action on them can be a really good way to go. Um, most people aren't gonna just browse around, you know? It's like the average website visiting is like 10 seconds or something like that. So it might be even less than 10 seconds. So you're trying to grab their attention and you're trying to, you know, stay in touch with them. So one really important thing that I think is, is important to have there is email address. Sorry, collect their email address because you wanna be able to stay in touch. Even if they don't necessarily wanna hear everything you have to offer into the future, it's import, important to get their email so you can tell them when you have new music coming out and stuff like that. So setting up a way to collect email addresses in exchange for something of value. So I try to separate it out into my different parts of my audience. So saying like students, trombone students, uh, like other colleagues or other trombone professionals, and then uh, music lovers. So they, we all have different things that we might want. So I have lots of PDFs that I give away or like music that I give away. And I try to direct those different people to different places on my site so that I can give them something for taking the time to uh, check out the site. So those are things I think about. And the last thing I'll say is setting it up in a way that one expresses your brand and really shows you, uh, shows your personality, shows, you know, a professionalism through color choice, through font choice, you know, simple is better. And then the last thing was um, making it easy to update. Yeah, keep because because number one thing about a website is you have to keep it updated. If it's not updated, people will go to it and they'll say this person doesn't update their website, you know, and they're going to be done with you. Okay, we got a recommendation for new music. I'll give you a recommendation, a great record that came out today on Outside In Music from a great friend and pianist, Stephen Feifke. He's got a big band record that just came out, another uh, and it's got a lot of great trombone on it. If you if you are a trombone fan, Robert Edwards is on there, Jeffrey Miller, Armando Vergara, Jennifer Wharton is on there. So a lot of great trombone players. Benny Benack, Ulysses Owens. There's a lot of great people on that record. So Kinetic is the name of it. You can check that out. Ulysses Owens also has a big band record out coming out with, with us. And there's two singles out from that. So check those out. 
There's some great young players on there. Those are my music recommendations for today. Okay, Trent says, tips for naming, renaming a group you lead when you don't necessarily want to have your name in the group title. Um, this is something I'm notoriously bad at, Trenton, so I don't know if you should uh, take my advice on this one. I've had a lot, I've had band names that were non-desirable, that's for sure. Um, I mean, for, I know you don't like the name of your band, but um, I actually don't find, I thought I find it to be clever, and I thought that, that from a marketing standpoint, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition of like the Louisiana kind of thing and the fun kind of thing and the double meaning of the words. I don't know. I kind of liked your band name. But um, yeah, I would I would make it clear what it is. Like if you want to call it a brass band or if you want to go and say like name it after the naming conventions that are popular to the genre, you know, like um, like a brass band, you they usually call it a brass band or something like that or like take something that's it doesn't have a lot of meaning to it. Um, and you kind of put the meaning to it. You could search for like URLs and see if there's like anyone else that's using the band name. Try to search on Spotify, make sure nobody else is using the band name, different stuff like that, just to be kind of interesting. But, you know, I would recommend thinking about how other people perceive it more than yourself, you know, because I never thought it was that bad of a name, to be honest with you. I know you don't like it, but um, it doesn't really matter like what what you think, you know matters what your customers think, right? It matters what the, the public thinks. But I try to be creative, try to think about the naming conventions. I know it's like Trenton's group is kind of like a, an early jazz group or a traditional jazz group, but kind of like a fun party kind of thing. And, you know, there was there's a band I used to play with called the Hot Sardines that did that. So it was like using like hot like it was then in that there was, a you know, let's see, what other bands can I think of that had a, like uh, some people just went by like a fake name like a nickname, like a fake nickname, that the stage name rather, not a fake name, a stage name. And they would just go like by stage name and his band. Or like just look at the naming conventions, like Hot Fives, Hot Sevens, all that stuff um, is is uh, what I would suggest. So you don't have to like reinvent the wheel, you know? There you go. Buy you a drink to Electric Boogaloo. There you go, man. What trombonist influenced you the most? Ooh, that's a very tough question if I had to say quote unquote, the most Wycliffe Gordon, I suppose. It would have to be one of those first ones I named it was either JJ or Wycliffe Gordon. I mean, Wycliffe Gordon was a person in my life. You know, I never got to meet JJ. So I would say, I, I guess it would have to be him because like his writing influenced me, just like his presence, his stage presence, his playing, obviously, tunes, records, you know, uh, all that stuff is something that influenced me in real time, you know, going to his house, showed me that I knew nothing, gave me a lot of uh, advice on um, what to practice and like needing to learn how to play the piano and just a lot of things. So I guess that would have to be it. But, you know, Steve Teray was also similarly extremely, extremely influential and he really shapes my educational philosophy, maybe not in the way that it's presented, but in a lot of the way that he is super detailed about everything and super super detailed about like the approach every little part of the playing being prepared honoring the history of the music like all of that stuff is super important to him and i really picked up from just playing and interacting with him and working with him over time so those people are really influential steve davis is really influential i don't know it's really hard i don't have just one i'm sorry i failed the test here i'm 
I'm uh, BSing the answer because I don't I don't think I can pick. But those are ones and how they definitely have influenced me a lot for sure. Um, okay. Trombone is the most slidey of all the instruments. <laughs> what is your philosophy and approach to using this unique mechanism? All right. Well, my approach is that I want to use it when I want to use it, and I want to not sound like a slide when I don't want to sound like a slide. I approach it in both ways. Like, use the slide, play it up. Play with grease. Play with glissando. Glissandi, if you want to be official. But uh, know your role, you know? I tend to go towards a clean kind of approach because I think that trombone can be misunderstood sometimes and people want to just say it's oh it's loud and obnoxious and this and that and it's a tailgatey instrument and it's like yeah it is and it's great for that reason but at the same time it's important to um, you know present the trombone how you want it to be presented you know there's a lot of guys doing a lot of different ways of playing the trombone just like every other instrument uh, but my philosophy is to learn as much about the history as you can Learn to play extremely clean. Learn to play like as many players as you love. You know, to me, that's like at least one modern player, JJ Curtis, and a couple of guys that are in that pre bebop era. Maybe Benny Green, maybe Lawrence Brown, maybe Jack Teagarden, maybe Dickie Wells. If you can, do all of those things. But I like to say I go to the middle, JJ Curtis, slide, and then I work in both ways, outward from the middle. So go backwards, learn some older stuff, go forwards, learn some modern stuff. So a lot of my students are checking out Marshall Jilks, Elliot Mason, uh, Steve Davis, obviously, uh, Michael Deese, all of those guys for sure, Ryan Keberly, uh, James Burton, Chris Crenshaw, Vince, Vincent Gardner, all the guys in the uh, Lincoln Center band and like people like Andre Hayward and Wycliffe Gordon, of course, formerly of the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra and um, Ron Westray, of course. And then kind of going backwards, you know, certain people are more apt to want to check out Tricky Sam or some people want to check out Lawrence Brown. That, I love Lawrence Brown, so I send people to Lawrence Brown and Benny Green. But um, there's those cats, and then there's, like, of course, all the other historical players. I can't just stand here and list them all off, but that's the philosophy. Is it possible to teach in the collegiate setting without the degree? I'm going to have to say probably not. Like, you probably need to have a degree. A degree, yes. Master's degree, most likely. Doctorate, we're on the fence. I don't have a doctorate. I have a college teaching job. Um, when I've been privy to some searches that we've done in recent years, there is, people do want people to have doctorates, like the university does. Um, I think a lot of the musicians are on the same page that we don't necessarily value a doctorate in the same way. Uh, as you know, a university president that has no idea what jazz is all about, maybe. But um, I think there's definitely room for people with a bachelor's plus experience. It's definitely more advantageous if you have a master's plus experience. Like when I say experience, I mean real life experience in like a real scene. And I don't mean to degrade anybody's scene, but like in a big city where there's a lot of people and a lot of musicians, like it just it kind of puts you in a certain caliber, you know. So I think you got to have at least a master's degree if you're really serious about um, playing in uh, or play, yeah, playing in playing in the college teaching sandbox, I guess. Um, but as more and more people want DMAs. So I can't speak to 
um, how many people will allow for masters versus wanting the DMA, but I do know that DMA is preferred by, you know, uh, a college for sure, by the university at large. But, you know, I think there's always going to be the smaller schools like Juilliard doesn't have that because they can hire whoever they want, you know, um, that doesn't have a degree or doesn't have the specific degree that they want. But in other cases, when it's more like a big university, you know, that research stuff is important to them and um, they want people to have that experience. And so by doing a PhD or a DM, DMA, excuse me, you go through that process of research. So they get used to that kind of approach of uh, thinking and interacting and such. At what point will the bebop hardbop players no longer be the middle? That's a good point. Do you think during your career, JJ Curtis, I will shift to being the older stuff? I think that that's probably true already. I guess it's just my view of the middle. And I guess when, when I say the middle, I don't necessarily mean middle chronologically. I suppose I think of bebop, hard bop as like jazz's regular kind, if that makes sense. That's the regular type. It's like what people think of when they, when they um, think of jazz. They either think of like old timey jazz, maybe if that's their thing, or they think of like that bebop, hard bop, six, early 60s, late 50s, mid 50s kind of vibe, I think. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm imagining. And yeah, when I guess when you talk about 50s and 60s, as the middle chron chronologically, you're definitely right. I think people already do think it's the older stuff, probably. But like, there's not that many straight ahead guys from the 70s and the 80s. I mean, there's, there's, of course, Robin Eubanks and Steve Trey, you know, and they came through the legacy of Art Blakey, and then Steve Davis a little after that. I also don't know that it matters that much. I feel like I can just change the wording and say, maybe it's not the middle, but it's the like, I think it's the most specific you know, like playing bebop is like a specific language. And then hard bop is like one flavor of that with less chromaticism potentially. And then you get post bop, which is like more complicated. You get all the Wayne Shorter modal stuff, which I think kind of that's where we're at today, you know, is all the Wayne, the, the modal mixture, all of that stuff. Plus like what you were checking out, like Dave Holland and all that coalescing into this modern jazz kind of thing. But it's also kind of coming out of like the Gil Evans, Bob Brookmeyer, Maria Schneider, like more orchestral kind of thing. Not orchestral, but like more big picture focused. I guess it's, it's not going to be the middle forever. You're, you're definitely right. But in my current teaching philosophy right now, that's how I think about it. Which artists have you dived into? Is there anyone whose entire discography you've listened to or tried to? Yeah, Duke Ellington, Pat Metheny, JJ, Curtis, Jazz Messengers. Herbie, Miles, Chick Corea, all the artists that I love that I've done that kind of deep dive with trying to trying to listen to it all. Uh, I, but I also don't think it's not that important to like memorize the entire discography of a person. You know, we live in a in an age where you can get the info that information pretty quick. So just memorizing a whole bunch of information isn't super important. Having a couple records that you love and you know the music on, you know, is pretty important, I think in terms of just de devouring the music and getting it inside of you rather than just be like this thing that you kind of hear and think about. It's like part of you, you know? There's certain records, JJ in person, that one's inside, you know? Uh, some of Wycliffe Gordon's early records, Sliding Home, that one for sure. It's just like, it's just in you, you know? And uh, the Ellington stuff that I played 
back in the beginning of getting interested in Duke Ellington, you know, that stuff is just like inside of me. I don't know what record it was technically on because now I've, as by the time I was getting into jazz in early 2000s, everything was compilations. So I don't know necessarily the name of the record, but I hope you guys have an amazing weekend. I'm going to jump off. I got another meeting. If you want to, in the comments, uh, address my initial ask from the day, which was that I was going to, I'm going to schedule a few uh, master class sessions that are about specific topics uh, rather than these kind of more general question and answer sessions uh, and sprinkle them in uh, the rest of April and maybe a little bit in May, but probably mostly in April uh, just to kind of dive deep on a couple of topics regarding trombone, improvisation, or whatever else. So uh, let me know what you think in terms of a time that works good for those sort of things, topics that we want to dive into. Like I said, I got a bunch of good suggestions on Instagram, but I'll see you guys all next Friday for another Q&A. And uh, if you want to join in on the virtual studio, we have our uh, virtual studio class next Friday as well, where people play live for each other in our in our class. So if you sign up for the new Rhythm Changes course, if you sign up for um, any of my courses or the monthly subscription, you'll get access to that studio class. So that'll be a lot of fun. Okay, so thanks for being here, everyone. I got to jump off, but I will catch you all next week.